You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Oh, hey there, all you triathlon and Zen studying wizards. This is Coach Brett with another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon. I am back from the Ironman of backpacking. Did a 12-day backpacking excursion in the Rocky Mountains, complete with mountain peaks, sleeping, camping, uh, 12,000 feet elevation, putting out a fire with snow in July, and... Did I say bear bags already? Having to put your food in bags and hoist them up in the trees at night so the bears don't come get you. And it's been a uh, really great time. And so I'm going to talk on this episode about three topics. One is a moment of zen that I had while uh, backpacking. And it has to do with the Garmin watch and recording data. And it was really, really nice. So I'm going to talk about that. And also we have a new vehicle in the family. I'm not in it right now. It's Emily's new car. It's a Volkswagen Atlas, which is an American built Volkswagen built in uh, Chattanooga or Georgia. I can't remember which one. And it's really big and really cool. And it has some features that triathletes might like. So I'll talk about that. And then also I've got the ultimate route to kill lots of time on Zwift and also um, how to set up your TV to uh, kill time. So if you've got to train indoors, how to do, the problem is, is it gets really boring. So how do you uh, kill hour after hour after hour on Zwift? So I have all that. So let's go ahead and get started with the show and what happened on this backpacking thing. Oh, I've got a light on my phone going on right now. Let's turn that off. There we go. This backpacking trip was, I was an adult leader. There was four adult leaders and six Boy Scouts at uh, Philmont, which is in northern New Mexico, almost southern Colorado. And uh, we probably start off around 6,000 feet and over 12 days hike anywhere from uh, like three miles a day to 12 miles a day and uh, over mountain peaks, so lots of elevation gain some days. Uh, some days we had to carry water, which is a, uh, because the camp at night was going to be on a mountain peak with no water and you need uh, water to cook your food and also cook your breakfast. And I posted a video on Instagram of like inhaling. It got down into the, maybe the thirties at night, definitely the forties. And the packs kind of depended on how much uh, gear you were willing to carry. We had to carry our food for several days at a time before we would get resupply on food. And uh, so my backpack weighed somebody one. I had a really heavy pack one day and, and it weighed like 70 pounds. They said, I don't know about that, but it definitely at least 60. And uh, even the young guys, the boys were carrying packs that weighed 40 something pounds. And Emily went, which was super cool as, as an adult leader. So yeah. And, and Philmont's like the mecca of Boy Scouts. If you can, you get to Philmont. It's a high adventure uh, camp that um, 
it's just like the coolest thing ever. And you get a belt buckle for, for going and, oh man, it's just the best, but it's really, really hard. And it really tests a lot of people, but, oh, and you have to find your way by maps. So it'd be kind of like an adventure race, sort of, and mixed with the Tour de France <laughs> because it's stage, you know, you get to rest every night, but sort of, and then, uh, then you got to pick up and go in the next day and having done, uh, stage stuff myself, you know, I knew all about rest and recovery. So I tried to sleep as much as I could and, uh, not get worn out and, you know, conserve energy. And I found all my, uh, triathlon and Ironman training over the years and ultra running was just indispensable. I did most of it in tennis shoes because I knew about, um, uh, that you don't really need hike, heavy hiking boots if you already have good uh, foot control and, and have low profile shoes. I wore Escalantes for a lot of it. That's different, different topic. But anyway, I, um, well, we had a mileage estimate every day and it was a very rough estimate. It wasn't very good, but it, at least it was something of about how many miles we were going to have to travel. So you know, today's going to be five and a half miles, uh, or today's going to be eight miles or something like that. And we would start off and another dad had a Garmin Phoenix 5S, I guess. I have the Garmin Phoenix 5 and he had the one that's a little bit beefier than that. There's like one that's even, you know, beefier. And, um, now the thing is, is there's no electricity, so recharging things can get to be a problem. So you want to watch your battery life. And we pack along um, battery chargers. That way we can use our phones if we have to. There's hardly ever any cell phone signal whatsoever. On Every few days we pick up a signal. I think I didn't even take a sh shower. There weren't even showers until like day six. And it was a cold shower out of a creek. But anyway, the... Issue was, uh, I'd uh, charge up my phone. Uh, you needed a phone just in case of emergency, maybe. If you if you did get signal, maybe if you got on top of a mountain peak, you could radio for help or call for help. And uh, they said, don't call 911, because if you call 911, that's in Colorado, and Colorado doesn't care about you in New Mexico. Call this other phone number <laughs> for the uh, base camp where they could come out and rescue you with rangers. And they... Uh, uh, they gave us, you know, these estimates of our route that we took uh, through this big loop that we took through the the um, the mountains. And after a few days, you know, my watch started dying and then it just ran out of juice. You know, you recharge it and whatever. Uh, and so using the these hikes, even though they were um, only, only a few miles to a lot of miles, but they would take a long time. So you're out there for hours and hours and hours and hours uh, hiking. So it eventually kills your GPS and it kills your battery. The GPS kills your battery. And uh, after, I think it was like eight days, um, I had no longer any battery pack. Uh, reserve, you know, stowed away battery pack in my backpack that could I could recharge anything. It was all depleted because keeping my phone charged and keeping um, the watch charged kind of ran it out. Oh, and then Emily started uh, paying a scout to use his battery charger 
like 20 bucks to charge her phone. Or was it 10 bucks? It was ridiculous. And because she wanted to post stuff on Inst- on uh, Facebook and all that. But anyway, I decided to, I managed to charge my watch one more time. And then the last day was going to be really, really bad. So I, uh, really, really hard. It was going to be 12 miles. It was going to be our hardest day. And that day I wanted to know, I wanted to keep track of mileage uh, so that I could document it and also to help me know, you know, how much more I've got left. Because it really does help to know uh, what elevation you're at, you know, how many miles left probably, uh, you know, is it uphill, downhill, things like that. And I, uh, so for two days, I didn't use GPS and I kind of relied on this other guy because he was charging his watch. And they were kind of two days that weren't all that um, difficult or anything like that. So I went without it. Um, when I was hiking with using my watch, I was finding I was having to stop it and start it and stop it and start it because the auto pause feature was, um, wasn't slow enough. Um, it would, the, the slowest you could put it on auto pause is one mile per hour. And there were times where we were hiking less than a mile per hour because it was so steep and it was like Everest where you take like a few steps and you have to stop and catch your breath and a few steps and talk, stop and catch your breath. We're coming from sea level and it's 11,000 plus feet. And, um, so it was losing, uh, distance and time. So it wasn't being accurate. And then also another thing it was doing was if you stop it, we got to remember to start it. If you stop it by hand, you got to remember to start it by hand. And sometimes you would forget. So you're hiking along and you go, Oh crap, I forgot to start it again. And that happened enough times. And so, and we stop a lot, um, because you know, there's 10 of us and there's always like some sort of problem. Something falls off somebody's pack, somebody's shoe comes untied. And, uh, I mean, we did, we did really well, but you do stop a lot because of just little issues. Somebody falls down, you know, whatever. Um, or you're waiting for somebody to catch up and the, or people want to stop and take photos because it's beautiful. And the next thing I noticed was, um, uh, saving my watch. I just put it away, turned it off, put it away. I charged it up one last time so that it had battery life and then put it away. So I would have it for these last few days. So now I'm hiking, uh, for two days without anything except just by feel, you know, and this happens in triathlon on the bike a lot where somebody's bike computer um, blows up and then they just, it's called like a Zen ride where you just kind of ride by feel and maybe a stopwatch at most. And I was, uh, it was so, I mean, I already know all about this, you know, the different stuff. I talk about it all the time. Like you got to do this every once in a while, turn off all the technology and just go by feel. But man, it was so cool because it was, it was instant, you know, black and white day, you know, six versus, or was it day all the way doing, doing measuring devices and all that stuff up until day like eight or nine and then stopping it and just going by feel immediately like day 10. And it was bizarre. It was so cool because we would start hiking and my reaction is, oh, this is normally when I turn on my watch, you know, beep. <laughs> and I didn't have to. And um, and I was reasonably accurate on like how far we'd hiked and 
and what time of day it was. It was actually really cool. And I was like, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast, about the feeling of freedom and letting go that um, led to, uh, that was created from just turning off the technology and just going by feel for a while. It was really, really neat. So I suggest that um, you try this, you know, turn off your bike computer mileage stuff. It really, and, and feel the difference. And it's uh, when you're doing some training, it's, it's really cool. And then uh, next to the last day, we hit a staff camp that had um, some stuff for sale and I found a solar charger. So I bought that and then charged up my watch or charged up a backup battery and charged up my phone and stuff. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to um, now go, I'm going to use my watch again. And that was great too, (laughs) because actually knowing for sure the distance that you have gone for sure is also really, really important. And on that last day, it was critical because we knew for sure it was a 12 Uh, mile day and we knew when we had done 10 miles you know and that it was going to be two more miles and we knew our average pace and like all this stuff so that also was very cool and then I also found out a trick Um, if I did regular GPS it would kill my watch in two days of hiking I would turn the GPS off you know after our hike is done uh, but I would run out of battery after two days. And then um, day, the last, the last two days when I turned my watch back on and I had, um, because I had a solar charger now, uh, strapped to the back of my backpack, charging up batteries while I was hiking. That was kind of cool. The, uh, the other thing I noticed was I put it on ultra track mode GPS. And it's this huge battery saving mode and we hiked both days and it barely put a dent in my battery life. I think I was at like, it only used up like 20% of my battery after two days on my watch. So if you're wanting to do something really, really long, try the ultra track mode. And it also um, was right on with the uh, mileage. It didn't seem to have any kind of problem whatsoever. It kind of sucked going back to having to press the buttons and everything, but also there was a sense of relief. And, oh, I remember that too. That was interesting. I had this total sense of calmness come over me um, when I'd been using Ultra Track after one day or mostly through the day, and it was barely using any battery life. And also I had a solar charger on me. So like now I had enough. I was complete as far as like battery power went and the uh the feeling of security and confidence and um well-being that everything was going to be fine uh, went away or uh picked up like like uh, came over me and i didn't realize it but i had been feeling anxiety and such over you know battery life and like always having to monitor something was like stressful and it was nice that it went away okay that's it i gotta go into w to the erk and get some work done and uh next we'll cover this really cool car 
that Emily got to replace her old car that had over 200,000 miles on it, an old Honda Civic, and it's called the Volkswagen Atlas. Go give it a quick Google. It is a cool, cool car. I will be right back out, bang. All right, we are back. I'm actually in the Nissan Xterra, a 2013 Nissan Xterra, but we're gonna talk about a 2019 Volkswagen Atlas. So uh, all the time you see posts on message forums, um, you know, what's the best triathlete car? Everybody's always trying to come up with that. Um, and you know, honestly, it would be a full-size pickup because then you have the bed in the back to put all your bikes and stuff. But for most people, a full-size pickup is uh, a truck is just not an ideal ideal vehicle to own uh, for two reasons the gas and the um, the size of the dang thing you know I drove a full-size f-150 with an extended cab which is pretty much one of the largest vehicles you could own um, I drove one for like 10 years or something eight years drove it into the ground it's a really great vehicle but it gets old like trying to park it and I live in Texas we're in a smaller town where there's plenty of room to park it. Although I did have it in San Diego for a while. And so it was great with surfboards in the back and all that. But, uh, you know, what do you do as far as cars go? Or what are some car choices? And the next best option is, uh, honestly, is a minivan. Because you can... Uh, minivans... Most of the time, you can put the um, you can put a bike in vertically, and you don't have to take it apart. Uh, you don't have to take off any wheels, and that's a pretty good option. I, I had a Honda Element actually. Now that I think about it, I had a Honda Element for a few years and loved it because you could put a bike in vertically in there. They have a low floor and a relatively high roof, and that wasn't actually that was actually a, a really cool. Um, uh, yeah, I think the, the seats folded up to the sides. So we could put two bikes in. But the front wheel or the rear wheel went all the way. I had to lower the seat of the bikes. And then I, because um, I'm tall. And then there was something else. Oh, the, the wheel had to go up between the front two seats. Because Honda Elements are kind of short. That's a clown car. It's where it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. <laughs> it's really odd. It's a cool car, though. Uh, but Emily was looking to replace her car, so we were on the hunt looking for a good um, replacement. And there's, uh, and also we're behind the curve. We haven't bought any new cars since 2013, so a lot of the stuff y'all know if you've been in the market looking for stuff lately. But we were, you know, new to this, and we. Um, the Kia Telluride came out and basically there's a whole new wave of sport utilities which are really, they're really minivans but they look like sport utilities and so they don't quite have the size inside where you could put in a bike vertically but you know, for quite a few years now the smart invention is these uh, trailer hitches you get a trailer hitch put on your vehicle and then you can do a trailer hitch rack and then you can put your bikes behind the car instead of on the roof which I've also done I've had an Isuzu Rodeo which is an SUV 
which the bikes were on the roof. Drove that one into a parking garage with a bike on the roof one time. And then I had a Volvo 240, a 1980 or 81 Volvo 240 with the Yakima roof rack, which was really cool. Um, uh, so you got to watch out when stuff's on the roof. So behind the vehicle is even smarter because it keeps your bikes clean. Um, so we were looking at the Telluride, which is an amazingly cool vehicle. It is such an awesome vehicle. It's basically like a Range Rover, um, but not not quite as, as off-roady, off-road worthy, and then um, way cheaper. And uh, we totally would have gotten one of those, but they just weren't. Um, they're they're so cool and they're so awesome that you can't find any. They're they sell out the instant they show up on the lot, and. So we couldn't find one like we liked. And then in the car shopping madness of going around looking, we stumbled across a vehicle that I hadn't even been aware of. And I'd been researching vehicles for a while. Uh, the Volkswagen Atlas. And there was something about it that was really odd. It's, it's a car that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. When you're on the outside, it doesn't look as big as it is. And when you're on the inside, you're like, is this thing a freaking minivan <laughs> when you're looking in the back? And um, and then the other thing, I think because most people don't really know about them, they're not like super popular yet, um, and they've been out for a couple years, you can actually get a good deal on them because um, there's a bunch sitting on the lot. Uh, as opposed to the Telluride, where you know you're going to have to pay uh, over retail price because there's a waiting line for people to get these, so they're going to charge extra. Where the the Atlas, there's um, they're just sitting on the lot, and um, oh, and they're so cool looking. They look like a, a um, Volkswagen and Audi are the same company, and uh, they look. There's, there's versions of the Atlas that look a lot like a, an Audi, uh, I don't know what they are, a Q7 or something like that. And it's basically the same car. So basically you're getting an Audi at a discount and you feel you can feel it when you drive it. Like it's really cool. Okay, I got to uh, pick up some breakfast tacos and I'll be right back to keep talking about the features of this car that uh, we got and how they've worked out so far, especially on our big road trip. It was really cool. All right, hold on, bing. Okay, I'm back. Okay, so some of the features is that it came standard with a trailer hitch, a two-inch uh, trailer hitch. So we can use the trailer hitch that's currently on the back of my uh, Nissan Xterra. We can move it from vehicle to vehicle, which is really nice. And it was standard, you know, there's like no quab no quibbling, quabbling, is that a phrase? Uh, over, well, can we get a trailer hitch? And, uh, and like I said, that's a big useful way to uh, put bikes on the back of your car uh, that works out really well and then let's see the tech packages um, because it's a good deal on a car and they're in stock we were able to get a price on it where we were able to actually afford like the um, the cooler tech stuff so it comes in uh, maybe the regular and then the SE and then the SEL, I guess. Uh, or maybe there's like an SE with tech packages and there's SEL, which we got the SEL. And then there's one above that called SEL Premium or something. And the Premium has a Fender 
branded um, stereo system and it can park itself parallel parking if you have trouble parallel parking but it was like eight grand more or something like that we're like well that's dumb but because uh, we don't need that stuff but the one the SEL has like a completely digital dashboard and it is awesome your whole dashboard in front of above the steering wheel can turn into a uh, can turn into a map which is really neat but the cool thing is that the safety features uh, that a lot of cars now have standards so this could kind of apply to most cars uh, is just fantastic the lane keep assist where once you go over like 35 or 40 miles an hour it'll start trying to keep you in the lane um, and then also the adaptive cruise control where it'll you know slow down if the car in front of you is slowing down now what was so cool is we bought this car and then a week later we drove all the way to Philmont with four people in the car and then huge amount of backpacks and stuff like that and we were following another vehicle to pick up a Honda Ridgeline with um, backpacks and all kinds of gear and, and people in it in front of us and uh, I haven't been to Philmont in 30 years uh, but the guy that was driving the other vehicle went two two summers ago uh, so I just followed him and I set the the cruise control at a few miles per hour over the speed over what I knew he would like to drive and then I just followed him and it was crazy cool it followed him uh, if he slowed down our vehicle would slow down and you can adjust like how close you are actually to the cars in front of you and then if uh, he came to a stop like there's a lot of small towns we had to drive through that only had like one traffic light and uh, it would come to a complete stop uh, because he came to a stop and then to go again you don't just lift up off the brake because that would be dangerous because that could send you out into traffic you have to lift up off the brake and then put your foot on the accelerator a little bit and then then it'll go and it'll go all the way back up to 75 miles per hour or whatever you were driving to catch back up to the vehicle in front of you to a point you know it's but it won't hit the car in front of you it was really cool and the whole time it's keeping in the lanes and I think it's like 30 seconds or something where it would beep if beep at you if it didn't um, if you haven't touched the steering wheel in that long uh, which is a safety feature and because it's not totally autonomous um, and what one thing I thought that was pretty cool is if you're in a curve um, you only had to uh, turn the wheel with a little bit of effort and it would see the curve line and push the rest of the way it's kind of like you had like an assisted arm pushing the steering wheel in the curve and dude, it is a trip being behind a car and the restraint you have to have not to put your foot on the brake so I would cover the brake with my foot a lot of times at first to make sure that it um, it would come to a stop and not hit the car in front of us but then after a while I learned that if it started slowing down at all then it was going to slow down all the way if it saw the car in front of us and I quit worrying about it so much uh, it was really cool 
and uh, on the way there, we drove over two days. We split the 12-hour drive up over two days. But on the way back, we needed to get back in town. So we did the drive um, uh, what did we do? We did it. Hey, there's a Jeep Gladiator. A white one. Huh. That's cool. Um, we, uh, we drove it in one shot. This 12 hours in one shot. Emily and I just traded drivers every once in a while. And it made the trip so uh, weird, man. Like, like uh, it made driving enjoyable um it was just you just sat back and relaxed it was more like watching tv than it was driving and um speaking of gladiator we kind of looked at gladiators because emily wanted a jeep but she doesn't she's not it's, a jeep isn't a really good vehicle to buy like a jeep 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 wrangler is not really a good vehicle to buy unless you're really in the off-roading so i, I talked her into buying something more uh, street street friendly kind of i went uh Oh, we got the one with the all-wheel drive, which uh, is really useful. I found at triathlons, a lot of times you have to park in a field, and the field could be muddy. You don't know what's going to be there, and then you're kind of you're kind of worried, kind of stuck. You know, like man, I don't want to park here. This happens a lot in Texas, probably a lot of places, and um, all-wheel drive to help you get out of that stuff. And speaking of like full off-road jeepiness, I've started seeing the all-wheel drive system is actually really good on the Atlas. It's the Volkswagen 4 Motion. And the um, the cool thing is uh, the ground clearance on a lot of these sport utility hybrids, the, the ones that are kind of unibody, the minivan, the hidden minivan style, um, they don't have much ground clearance, but the Atlas does. The Atlas has half decent ground clearance. Um, like the Honda Ridgeline has terrible, terrible ground clearance, the pickup truck, which is based on the Honda Odyssey minivan. Um, but the, um, the Atlas has decent ground clearance and then I've started seeing um, online videos of people that have modded them and lifted them up, you know, added like a, an inch, two inch, three inch lift to them and better tires and, and are doing like true off-roading in them. Not rock crawling, but better off-roading. And it looks pretty badass. So it's kind of like, in a way, it's kind of like a, you know, a real off-roading vehicle that's just waiting for a, a, just a, a few upgrades and then you could you could actually turn it into like something that's decent for uh, more off-road terrain it would be pretty cool because the ground clearance is kind of built in already. It's not it's not embarrassing <laughs> to start. <laughs> oh man, the Telluride would be kind of the same way. All right, I've got to run into a meeting and I've got a, a couple more details on the Atlas and some ideas uh, when I come back. Out, bang. All right, we are back. <laughs> it's a couple days later, move through time. And yeah, we're going to continue uh, wrapping up just a final touch or two on the Atlas. And also last night was when the, um, the new Corvette, the rear-engined, mid-engined Corvette is, uh, was released. And my buddy uh, Roman Micah was on site. I haven't talked to him in a while, but he's a good friend. And he uh, was doing a review of it. And out of all the colors, I thought it was interesting. I didn't really like, I don't really like the design all that much. 
Um, but it's okay, you know. But uh, it was. Let me think. Um, the oh, the white one. The white one really looks good, and I'm like, why? Why does the white one look so good? And then I figured it out. Uh, it doesn't have a rear wing on it. And there's something about the white that hides, it blurs the uh, all the exaggerated edgy lines on it. So it looks smoother. And so then now the white one looks most like a Lamborghini. And that was happens to be, without all the spoilers and stuff on it, the extra stuff, it happens to be the, um, the cheapest one. So, okay, I'll go. So the... And they're saying the base model does zero to 60 in less than three seconds. <laughs> and that made me think, um, an American Lamborghini, an Amborghini. And it looked really cool. I mean, the white looked really pro. So I like that one a lot. Okay. Go check that out. Uh, TFL and Corvette, and you'll see Roman. Roman Micah. There's another guy named Micah, but that's his first name, and he does uh, Kelly Blue Book. But anyway, uh, on the Atlas, what was so interesting is when I was test driving cars, I realized, you know, I really wanted like a full-size pickup truck, but we're not going to get it. This is Emily's car, so she doesn't want a full-size pickup. But test driving, I realized there was a new trend that was really interesting. And I think I noticed it first in the Honda Passport was that this vehicle was wide, like, and that the wide made it feel um, bigger, more like a pick, like a full-size pickup truck. And I noticed that in the Telluride, a lot in the Passport. And then when, uh, then I realized, okay, I started making a checklist of what are we looking for? What am I looking for? you know, on my checklist, uh, in Emily's car, uh, so that I'll be happy too. Cause I got to drive it a bunch as well. And, um, I realized I didn't care if it was a pickup truck or not. It, it just, it felt more substantial if it just felt wide. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, all right, that's kind of interesting. And when I sat in the Atlas, it was ridiculously wide. And then the, uh, some people have commented on a design feature a design touch that is um, very interesting the dashboard looks like a 1980s uh, car where it's real wide and it's uh, horizontal lines like take the whole thing and and I was like oh my god that's what it is it looks like I grew up I grew up with my parents having full-size station wagons I even got run over by a full-size station wagon when I was a kid. Not my parents, my neighbors. And broke my leg. I was in the hospital for a while. Uh, I was in a wheelchair for a month, something like that. Anyway, I uh, grew up in these full-size station wagons. And at one point, my, my mom custom-ordered a Ford Crown Victoria full-size it's called a country squire station wagon and a woody wagon so it had the wood paneling um and 
Uh, the dashboard kind of looked like, you know, this big, wide dashboard. It was a 1986. Uh, but the cool thing was is it had it had the trailer package so it had dual exhaust for real like it needed dual exhaust it had a v8 in it it had the mustang uh, v8 in it tuned for more uh towing like torque and it had the towing transmission and we used to tow a 25 foot long sailboat um in that thing around the country going sailing different places uh, it was and so, so anyway back to the atlas Sorry, I was having a flashback moment there. Back to the Atlas, it's, uh, it kind of reminded me of that. That big, well, I think that's also one of the cars I learned how to drive on. My granddad had almost the exact same car. And so I, it's as, it's as wide and as long as a full-size Suburban, like a Chevy Suburban. And that's what I learned how to drive on. And that's why I'm used to like big vehicles. I also learned how to drive on a Volvo uh, 240. But anyway, so that's it. Um, we'll cover the uh, Atlas more as we go about things uh, on the drive. We got the one with uh, black wheels and captain's chairs in it. So when you're inside, it kind of feels like you're in a minivan. And uh, Emily drove my son and my nephew up to Tyler, Texas. It's a three hour, three and a half hour drive just a couple days ago and she called me and uh, and she said the boys sat in the way back it's got a third row and they flopped down the seats in front of them and kicked their legs out and pretended they were in a limo <laughs> oh man that's cool okay so now let's go on to uh, some bike training stuff I was uh, reading some cycling news oh man there's some Tour de France stuff maybe I'll put a little bit of that on the end I was reading some cycling news and uh, Zwift had announced that a, a new course but it's only available for for like events certain events and I thought this is ridiculous because this was the this is the course that I tell people to ride all the time if you want to just kill time on the trainer and make it the most, um, the most triathlon-like, and the most amount of time. And what it is is you start with the TikTok course, and TikTok is uh, the loop that does the desert and then drops down into um, the underwater tunnel and then back up to the desert again. But when you uh, drop down into the underwater. Then you turn left and do the volcano flat uh, course. And that goes all the way around Watopia to the Watopia Island and back again to the um, to underwater. And then you take a left. Well, right before you go underwater, you take a left and then go back up to the desert. So that's the loop. And it's called, the course is called the waistband. And... Uh, when I'm really putting down the, the speed, it takes me 40 minutes to do this loop. So I do this loop uh, like three times, and that's two hours. And it's got a lot of variety in it. You know, you go underwater, you go through a volcano, go over bridges, go through the desert. Um, but also, it's generally pretty flat. Um, 
which is really good for triathlon because in triathlon, a lot of times, if you want to kill time, you want to do a long ride. You don't want to kill yourself on something super hard. You save the hard stuff like the super hills for, um, for like intense workouts, you know, that aren't very long. If when I, uh, when I build training plans for people and I give them workouts, when I give them workouts like two hours or more, I'm like, don't do hills like on purpose. Don't work, don't work the hills very hard. Um, the distance is the workout already. You're already getting plenty of a workout with just doing the distance. All right, that's it. Um, I'll be back in just a minute to uh, wrap up the show. Maybe I'll leave you all with uh, some Tour de France predictions, which will be completely wrong. <laughs> or maybe some observations. Because uh, predictions would be stupid because we're only halfway through. All right, that's it. Out, bang. All right, we are back. Just finished a swim, and I'll detail that workout. It's a good workout. And then, let's see, you got some Tour de France news, which you'll probably already know by the time you hear this, but it's still fun to cover it. And then, this is in Tri-Mobile Studios. One last thing about the Atlas I forgot was that it comes stock with a trailer hitch, or at least the level that we got came standard with a trailer hitch, which is awesome because then you can put the bike rack thing on the back. And that's the way to do bike racks nowadays. So, uh, let's see. Tour de France. What happened? Oh, we're on our, uh, today's day 15, day 16. And, um, it's a good triathlon lesson, long distance triathlon lesson in the tour is that the tours, you know, three weeks long, something like that. And, on day 14, there's all this consternation because uh, uh, Grant Thomas was being left behind a little bit and was losing time. But uh, you got to ask yourself, you know, what's still coming up and a lot of mountain stages. And then um, who is he losing time to? And he's losing time to... Uh, somebody that's trying really hard to stay in yellow, which is the ego trap. And uh, there's this whole thing, long-term Tour de France knowledge, where you don't want to be in yellow. You don't want to be the tour leader until the very end because being the tour leader causes a lot of stress. And basically, kind of like a running race, you just want to, or like a bike race, you just want to draft and draft and draft and draft, sort of, you know, meta, metaphorically speaking. Just be right behind the leader and let them wear themselves out. And uh, you have efficiency gains. Uh, if you're walking behind somebody or you're riding or running behind somebody, you can watch, or you're driving behind somebody, you can watch every little mistake that they make and then cut the corner just a little bit better than they did. And to go the same speed, it's um, easier. And I'm not just talking about wind resistance. I'm just talking about it's just easier because you can see everything that they're doing and just do it a tiny little bit better just seconds later. And also being in yellow uh, is very exhausting with uh, all the interviews and stuff like that that you have to do. And yeah, just after years of watching Armstrong talk about it, like you don't want to be in, it's, it's okay to not be in yellow. And sometimes they on purpose would, uh, I don't know if on purpose, but if they lost yellow, they were like, that's great. <laughs> I'm out of yellow. So somebody else can wear the, it's a big target on your back constantly. And then you act differently. You 
try really hard to keep yellow because you start getting this ego trip that you're the best. And so you got to keep working that hard to stay there. So yesterday's stage was stage 15, a big ass mountain climb. And then at the very, very end, uh, Grant Thomas uh, attacked and Alaphilippe, who's the guy that's been in yellow for quite a while now, um, blew up, sort of. And what was really telling, you can find this on YouTube, the post-race, I was about to say post-game, post-race footage. Um, there's a, it's like 13 minutes long or so. Uh, NBC Sports puts it on YouTube, the uh, highlights from the tour. And you can see Alaphilippe in yellow. Um just doubled over at the finish line. Uh, oh, and he had drool coming out of his mouth and stuff when he was pedaling. <laughs> but he's doubled over at the finish line, le- leaning against a fence, completely e- exhausted. So Kai and I were watching this, and I said, Kai, that is somebody that has spent themselves and is probably going to do really bad tomorrow. Now, I could be wrong. Well, they have a rest day, too. Um, so that might, you know, be taken into consideration. Got a day to recover. But... Grant Thomas wasn't at all like that when he came across the finish line. And there's still a week left. So basically, if you burn all your matches, uh, then it takes a long time to recover. And if you don't quite burn that last match, then um, you'll recover faster. And stage racing, day after day after day, is actually all about recovery more than anything else. So we'll see. But that was uh, some interesting observations. So when you're out doing triathlon stuff and, uh, you know, oh, there's this hill. I'm going to go up as fast as I can because somebody just passed me. No, don't do that. You save that for the very, 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 very end. Very end. Okay. Let's see. Oh, swim workout. Let's go ahead and get rolling. Get the W to the ERK. Ooh. Oh, I think that straw has a, a hole in it or something. Uh, swim workout. This is my second swim after coming back from Le Tour de Philmont uh, backpacking. And so it might be my third, but I think it's my second. What I've been doing is just taking my time. I, uh, my first swim, I only swim. I usually swim when I'm in peak form. I swim an hour. I swim nonstop, you know all crazy and my peak form is like that but when I got back into the groove uh, my first one back I could immediately tell that I was um, out of swim shape because I haven't swam in a while hold on gotta do a roundabout how do we drive a roundabout and then uh, uh, so I swam half an hour, and I could tell I was uh, inefficient. I really hadn't lost my feel for the water, but uh, my muscle strength for swimming was kind of gone. I got tired really quick. And, oh, that reminds me of a, uh, an aerobic thing i got to mention, too. And then we'll wrap, that'll be the end of the show. The, the, so I quit at uh, 30 minutes of the swim. You know, I did half of what I normally do. And I, because I've learned, especially from uh, starting to lift weights again after I haven't lifted weights in a long time, um, about how much you're going to hurt in a couple days. And I did. Um, but it wasn't too bad because I 
didn't try to do what I used to do. I did half of what I used to do and didn't wait two days. I waited like uh, four days, I think. And then got back in and today I felt so much better. And I did 40 minutes. But what I did was two intervals of 20 minutes. And there's two things that you need to work on on swimming. There's uh, In Zen, at some point you need to just give up and quit fighting yourself and just settle in. And then that's when you become efficient without trying. So there's this thing when you learn how to swim on swim team where you can't swim more than like two lengths of the pool, you know, up and back. And then finally somebody, a coach or whatever, makes you do, you know, 100, 200, 300. It's for every distance in swimming. Um, to move up to the next distance, you have to give up and quit trying to swim like you did for the previous distance, any, any doubling the distance. And when you finally give up, you learn how to hold a form that's actually more sustainable, but you have to give up first. So I was swimming along and I was like, all right, so to practice long distance efficiency, I just need to kind of just give up and just swim and relax. And then your body finds a way to be fast as fast as it can be. Um, with uh, at your current pace, but without trying too hard. So you do that for a while. Now that's really good training. That's long distance endurance training. The thing is, is that's really boring. <laughs> now to actually get faster as well, you have to do something to strain your muscles. So I, I swam not 20 minutes, but I swam like 17 and a half minutes at this lazy kind of pace and just settled in. And it was starting to get, I mean, you swim at 17 minutes nonstop is, uh, you know, that's got some, uh, got a little bit of endurance to it. So that with that, I'm working on my endurance, just my plain old endurance, practicing the cadence and everything to go long. If I was going long, this is what... Uh, this is the form I would use. If you don't practice that form, then you're going to be inefficient at it on race day. And Ironman racing is all about efficiency. So then uh, with like a couple minutes left in my 20-minute block, I picked up the pace and went pretty hard so that I built up uh, burning in my muscles, uh, was having to breathe hard. And then I almost blew up at the end of about two minutes. So around, around uh, yeah, like about a 20-minute block. And that stuff makes you faster, gives you more power and more strength. If you don't ever do that, you're just going to get really good at going slow. And your muscles will fatigue sooner. A big part of not fatiguing is you have to have strong muscles. The best way to increase muscle strength is to to resistance training, you know, intervals, but not too many of them. So I did that. Uh, and then I walk, whenever I say, um, in my coaching plans, when I give workouts, I'll say walk a 50 people. It's so funny because I grew up with this and other people didn't, um, just depends on which swim team you're on. Then, uh, people are always like, what? So walk a 50 means go up and back in the pool. Really, really easy 
uh, walking if you can, if you can touch bottom the whole way. And what that does is it allows you to catch your breath. And it takes about two minutes probably to go all the way up and back. And that's a really great way to reset and then get your breathing back down to easy, efficient, just cruising along, blah, blah, blah. You know, working on that endurance part of uh, your endurance form. Maybe that's the way we should describe it. Your endurance form. Your long distance form. And... Then uh, when I was done with that walk, you know, I um, started off and did another 20-minute walk. So I got in two intervals of really hard. So about 400 yards maybe, maybe 300 yards total of really, really hard muscle-building stuff. And about 2,200 yards of um, just kind of endurance whatever. But then the other thing was is it broke up the workout. So it was uh, really nice instead of really bad. And oh, also on the aerobic thing, uh, getting back into biking and running after being gone uh, backpacking and hiking, which is just different. I was talking to my uh, my buddy Ralph, and he was saying, or I was saying that um, he's done a lot of backpacking too. And I was saying, yeah, I could go and carry. After what I did, by the end of it. You know, I could go and carry a 60-pound pack for days, but that's different than running, and it's different than biking. So my running and biking is uh, is out of whack. And my heart rate was high um, and all this stuff. So I eventually decided on Saturday when I was running and I was blowing up after biking and blowing up that... I'm going to um, go by heart rate. And I did. I biked. I biked. Uh, I biked in the morning first. And then a little while later, I had lunch. Early lunch. And then kind of sat around. And then I ran for an hour later. And I ran by heart rate. And I kept it around 120, which is like super, super easy. And I was able to run the whole hour and feel really great. And actually felt stronger and faster the, the longer I went. Which was perfect. So there's uh, right tools for the, for the job, and the tool I needed uh, then was the heart rate. So heart rate is your body's reaction to work. Uh, so sometimes if you're completely off the charts in the wrong way, as far as like your work, you know, like <clears throat> your numbers aren't gonna, your numbers aren't all that great. Instead of watching your run pace or whatever, which is the work, you ought to watch your body's reaction to the work and make sure that you're still going easy and recovering and not pushing it too hard. And, and it works. And the way to do that is heart rate. Heart rate is your body's reaction to the work. Now, if you were racing, you would do the combo, say on the bike, um, and that would tell you if, there's, if things are going right or things are going wrong. You know, if you're used to pushing 200 watts and your heart rate's 130, um, then that's good, you know. But if you're used to pushing 200 watts and you try to push 200 watts and your heart rate is 160, then something's up. For example, the one I always talk about is if you're dehydrated, your heart rate will go up because your heart has to work harder to pump uh, uh, thicker fluid so your heart rate pumps faster to get all the stuff around 
for example, so in racing you use both, on good training days you use both, um, but a lot of times you just need to watch your body's reaction work, you don't worry about the uh, watts or the, the run pace, which are both, again, the work and then your heart rate is your body's reaction to the work. Okay, and perceived exertion too. Um, so that's it. I'm going to go into WTRK and get some stuff done. If you found these coaching and Zen tips uh, of worth to you, then head over to zentrathlon.com. You can check out old episodes and also support the show. There's a uh, PayPal a recurring or one-time donation button and it really helps out it's awesome and i love giving uh training tips and this will keep them coming all right everybody stay safe out there work the uphills cruise the downhills and keep the rubber side down out <laughs>